Hey, one quick thing before we get started. I just want to remind you that this podcast is for information, education, and entertainment. It is not a substitute for therapy or therapeutic interventions. If you find yourself in crisis, please visit your local emergency room or contact a crisis hotline. On this episode of the LOL Pod, my guest, Scott Schneider, and I discuss our passions for helping people find their true selves. We talk about some of the science behind attachment and the importance of living life authentically. Let's jump in. Hey everyone, it's LaShonda from Labors of Love, and you are listening to the Labors of Love podcast. Today I have a special guest with me. He is a licensed professional counselor and one of my colleagues, Scott Snyder. Scott, how are you today? I'm doing well, LaShonda. Thank you so much for having me on. I am excited to have this conversation. You're more than welcome. So I'm going to start with you, like I do all of my guests, and ask, what is your labor of love? You know, as as I started to ponder that, because I saw it yesterday, oh, I got to ponder my labor of love. And it's like, what is my foundational labor here? So I really started to to analyze that. And I dialogued with my wife through it. And, um, you know, I love what I do. And there's so many cool things. It's a great time to be a therapist because it's mostly science now and not just theory. And what I've learned is that the science and scripture, because I come from a faith understanding, a Christian understanding of God in the world, um, that they are intertwined. And we thought that they had a divorce back in 500 years ago. But scripture and science are actually one and the same. And it's been a beautiful, and it really accentuates the love story for me. And I think that, so with that, you know, I was a pastor for a while. I went to seminary before I went to the Master's of Arts and Counseling. And um, helping people to see, to find the, their true self, and to accentuate Genesis 131, where he created creation and looked at it and said, it's very good. And that we were created, every single person, no matter what you think, is created in the image of God. And he looks down upon us and says, it's good. And our true selves is good. And most of us don't believe that. And I think that in itself, if you look at it foundationally, everything we do, because I think self-love is the biggest breakdown that we have. The two scriptures, you know, when Jesus said, I've come to fulfill the law. And the, the law is fulfilled in these two commands. Love the, God, God, love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, and soul. And love your neighbors yourself. And I remember back when I was going to counseling 20 years ago, my Christian counselor said, the church teaches that wrong. It's, God, it's not God, neighbor, self. It's God's self-neighbor. And the breakdown is we don't love ourselves. And if we don't love ourselves, we cannot love our neighbor. And so helping people to understand that for themselves, I'm hearing, is the labor of love that drives you forward. Yes, helping them to find the real them. And, you know, many people, when, when I tell them that, they'll, they'll respond, what if I don't like what I find? Hmm. And I just smile and say, oh, you will. We always do. 
Mm-hmm. That's so beautifully put. And I appreciate that. You know, what I can appreciate about our relationship, Scott, is we get, we have these conversations where um, we can talk about all of that encompass. And that's what I appreciate. I have a lot of people in my life where, you know, I can talk scripture and we can talk faith, right? And then there are other people in my life and we can talk neuroscience and things. And then there are other people in my life and we can talk about therapy and theory, but there are not a whole lot of people in my life where we can, I can combine all of those things and have those very impactful, deep conversations, very meaningful conversations, because all of that are components of my work in my life as well. And so I was hoping to bring some of that conversational dynamics that we have to the podcast. Now, we usually talk for hours. So, (laughs) you know, the listeners will get an abbreviated version, but it is so nice to be able to have people um, who speak a similar language as you. And I don't mean that from the English, Spanish, German perspective, but I think, you know, those people who have people in their lives who can feel understood and seen in a way that they don't normally feel. It's a fantastic feeling. And you and I have talked about how we feel very akin to one another. Um, Even though if you look at our external demographics, we're very different, Mm -hmm. right? But, you know, there are these similarities and I love that. So let's maybe start down the the conversation talking a little bit about science. Sure. Yeah, and that's one thing, you know, even though I talk about scripture and things like that, it doesn't matter the perspective or the context that, that the client comes in, I will use theirs. I won't force them into mine. So it can go into scripture. It can go into science. It can go into therapy. We're going to get the same spot. No matter where you start, it's going to find you loving yourself, no matter mm-hmm. what context you come from. So I think that's important that it's not just one or it's not just pushing a religious point of view. Absolutely. Definitely. Not by any stretch, because we still adhere to the guidelines of no value imposition onto our clients. Yes, that's an ethical, uh, that's part of the ethics. <laughs> of right, counseling. exactly, exactly. And I think that needs to be clear in, in where we go, no matter where we go in, that, that that's always the case. I help them to find them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. So your, um, what's the word? Passion, interest in science and yeah. and how you know how that shapes us as people where is that rooted for you where do where did that yeah. start i'm going to take you to the where it first started and then where the science really kicked in the science kicked in but it came from a theological perspective first mm-hmm. and i was on staff at a church in indianapolis about 500 on a sunday uh westlake community church and um i was the adult education ministry involvement, um, men's ministry. So I was starting a a men's ministry. And uh, the worship pastor's wife gave me the book in the summer of 2002 called Wild at Heart by John Eldridge. And she said, if you're gonna start a men's ministry, you have to read this. And and so I started reading it and um, I began to, to feel others' pain because it talked about how the sins of the fathers are passed down. And, you know, through the generation that's coming from a theological perspective, the science backs that up even in more depth than that. But um, it's like, okay, yeah, when there's abuse and all that stuff, then I can see 
And, it, and, and as I started to read that, I thought, boy, if this is the case, I can't judge anyone. And, but at the same time, no one would have said I ever come from an abusive family. My father was nurturing. Uh, there would have been a lot of people who would have killed for my, my upbringing. And so I got to this point, I was, it was, it was a Thursday evening. I was in my purple recliner reading the book and I get to this benign statement that says, all men have wounds and many don't even know it. That's pretty benign. But as soon as I read that LaShonda, all of a sudden I started weeping profusely and my shoulders are shaking. I mean, fluids are coming out. I mean, it was a, a very emphatic sound weeping. And I thought, oh my gosh, what is going on? It triggered something inside me. And when I came to and you know, I, I realized that the message is, you've got to start healing. And so I began the process. That's when I began my personal journey. And so we developed the wild men. And we started putting that into play to where really worked with authenticity and vulnerability. And so as the, the pastor, I, I formed a, a leadership team, a core leadership team of three. And we just started hanging out together. We just started golfing together. We started having dinner. We, we talked, we brainstormed, we watched movies. We, we dialogued the wild at heart through the movies. What can we see? And it was all about validation from son or from father to son and what happens when validation doesn't occur. All the while understanding that validation is never 100% because none of us were raised by God. So we all have wounds going into that. And then we, we called in about nine or 10 small group leaders and we started and we held retreats with the leadership, three retreats over the summer. And with the leadership, with the core leader team, we developed a small group. And so we went through retreats guided by Wild at Heart DVD series and we started bonding. We started being vulnerable to each other. And these were guys who weren't involved in the church mostly. Their wives were, and were just smitten because they couldn't get involved, because they couldn't get passionate and feel their lifelong dream is to be a greeter at church. And it's like, I'm with you folks, come on in and let's get real. Mm -hmm. And so in these meetings that we would have, we treated it as sharing life together. And we just became vulnerable. We talked about what we were struggling with, what we were struggling with at home. Um, and I can tell you that there was not any wife bashing that went on. We talked about situations and said, how can, I, how can I respond differently to my wife? And then we had the big wild at heart meeting, the wild men meeting retreat, like uh, in the, the fall of 2004, the, the retreats were in the summer of 2003, the, the leadership retreats. And it was amazing. We had almost 50 guys there. And after the, about three weeks after the retreat, the, the senior pastor came up to me and he said, Scott, after I've talked to these men, this was not just a good weekend. It's truly revival. The wives were coming up to me and telling me my husband's different. He's a better husband. He's a better father. And it was just very rudiment. That's about all I knew was what I read in Wild at Heart and some of Townsend and Cloud. 
And, and so that touched me and I felt that. And I really felt just dissatisfied with being behind the scenes of the institutional church. But there were some things that moved me and that was one of them. And it still hasn't left me. I still feel the wild men in everything that I do. And then I was uh, writing up to Indianapolis, going from Southern Indiana to Indianapolis one time, it was like in 2007. And I was listening to a radio station and, and one program ended, the new one came on and says, okay, we're here at New Dimensions Radio. That was a new age and it had Dr. Bruce Lipton on it. And he started talking about, he's a cell biologist and he had written in 2007, The Biology of Belief. And he started talking on there. And I thought, oh my gosh. And he even says at one point in time, you know, the Judeo-Christian, the Bible understanding, they just don't get this. And I said, I think it was out loud as I'm driving in my van up there. Oh, Bruce, you don't understand how much you're proving scripture to be true. And then that started to go into the science element of that. And it hasn't stopped. And so when he said, you know, the Judeo-Christian just doesn't understand, was it that he was trying to disprove something using science and you found the connection? Or was he trying to prove scripture through science? Oh, he wasn't trying to prove scripture. Okay. In fact, his, his testimony is now, if you see him from 2017, 2018, 2019, he even talks about that time. He said, you know, back then when I wrote Biology of Belief, I wasn't spiritual. I didn't think spiritual wasn't. And he's like, and now I am. Mm -hmm. Gotcha. So, and he, so he didn't even realize what he was acknowledging there. And then when he started putting this together. So what they say is they're evolutionists, but they're not Darwinian. Gotcha. They're Lamarckian. Everything's connected. And even the non-believers, the Lipton's of that, uh, the dispensers, the quantum physicists, the scientists, the yogis that speak of consciousness, they all speak of that in a monotheistic way. They all talk about there's a divine mind behind the design. And the whole design of the universe is unconditional love. And it's coming from every facet, including all the non-believers that aren't coming from a, a faith perspective, are saying the design of the universe is giving and receiving. It's unconditional love. It's amazing. Mm -hmm. So when you're working with uh, people to find their true selves and to mm -hmm. kind of have that understanding, how do you interweave science? And where kind of, is there a direction you try to like lead people or suggest that they begin to explore that aspect of life? Sure, you try to take what they're coming in for. It might be depression. It might be some type of addiction uh you know whatever it is my the way that i i base a lot of my work on dr shore and dr siegel out of ucla they're interpersonal neurobiologists and that's dan tatkinism that uh founded the the pact institute which is a psychobiological approach to couples counseling or couples therapy pact and so I've done a lot of listening to, to Dr. Shore and all of his brain scans and work on right brain development the first thousand days, and then the, the, the right brain development across the lifespan. And, you know, Siegel works and talks about um, 
right brain to right brain emotional connection. And that leads us into the whole DART stuff, the childhood developmental and relational trauma. So what Lipton says is this, is that in the first seven years of our lives, we only have delta and theta waves going. So we're basically in a, in a hypnotic state. Alpha, which is calm consciousness, doesn't come in until age seven. So everything that we hear and experience is downloaded and that's the program that we're giving, the subconscious programming. And that's the program that's gonna run our lives. And that's the lens through which we're going to interpret all of life's events through that. So I have a woman who was raped at 19. It was her fault. Her husband had a couple of affairs. It was her fault. So we go back into childhood and the belt was used throughout so what was the message? Everything was my fault. So she interpreted those events in adulthood through the lens which was given to her that everything that negative happens is her fault. She should have some, done something differently. Mm -hmm. So you find out that that pattern of the world that, you know, so I listened for clues. Uh, I was talking to one guy this morning and I he said something about rejection. And I said, okay, I listened to, I listened to, the way that you describe what you're feeling. The reason you use rejection is because you're familiar with that feeling, which means you've felt it before. Let's go back and find its origin. Mm -hmm. And so, go ahead. Well, and what I want to help highlight for the listeners is, you know, they've heard me talk about this time and time again. I use slightly different language. I, I call it the template, mm -hmm. right? So sure. our template, our, our beliefs, our worldviews, and the behavioral patterns that we establish throughout life, and highlighting up until seven years old, that's the foundation of our template. Everything right. we learn or gather after that is really just put inside the square, round, and triangle holes that our, our template has already established. And when we talk about children, it's not as much learning, it's absorbing and downloading. So Exactly. Exactly. Why can the two-year-old learn three languages? Absolutely. Because they're not learning, it's downloaded. Yep, they're absorbing. It's directly downloaded. And I, we talk about that. So if people can just take a moment to reflect on what was my life like the first seven years that I was here on earth? And even if you don't have a lot of memory, uh, autobiographical memory, I don't remember what my house looked like. I don't remember going here. Your body does not forget. And all of those things that you experience, they live on and they right. play out in your startle response, in your perception of um, experiences. It's my fault or I, all of that is, is, is the foundation that was laid. And so, you know, I know I talk about that constantly and, you know, and appreciating how neuroscience and just science is helping us to put some elements together because for some people, science is that thing. They say, well, if science doesn't back it up, I don't believe it. And right. the beautiful thing is science is saying these very things, this is how we're engaging with the world. So I love it. Right. I had a client just last week and I talked with them and, um, you know, I always listen for words, how they describe what's going on, how they describe themselves. And, and I noticed this particular client used lazy and stupid a lot. So I said, okay, you didn't come up with those words, those words were given to you. And it came up in a great home. And 
And uh, he said, those words were never spoken to me. I said, they don't have to be spoken. We pick up, that's what that right brain to right brain, that, that attunement, we're actually hardwired to perceive what another is thinking and feeling. And that's how communication, because in the first two years of life, we only have a right hemisphere. The, the left hemisphere doesn't mature until age two. So the only communication can be done through right brain to right brain emotional connection that's literal, it's not a metaphor. And what Siegel says, that's how our self is developed. So I'm perceiving my mother perceiving me. That's how my self is developed. And, and so, yeah. And so he said, I said, so let's figure out where lazy and stupid was. So I saw him this week and he said, okay, I've been taking and, you know, thinking about your lazy and stupid. Where did that come from? He said, I had a childhood friend come over. And he said, so I asked him, yeah, counseling, he thinks lazy and stupid has something to do with childhood and, and my home life. And his friends started laughing. This childhood friend who was over there a lot, he goes, that's how I felt every time I entered your house as a child. Hmm. And they never heard those words uttered. The body remembers everything. The body keeps the score. Exactly. The body yes. remembers. And what I love about, you know, having this lens is something I frequently say is what comes out of a person makes sense when you understand what's gone into them. Exactly. And, and I think one of the first places to start with that knowledge is self. And so when you do something or you don't do something, when you say something or you don't say something, there comes um, a lot of shame and judgment oftentimes with that. Oh, I shouldn't have done that. Or why didn't I do better? Pausing and getting curious is, I think, one yeah. of the most foundational and fundamental gifts that we can give ourselves. Can I get curious with my existence? If I look at that thing I did, not through judgment and shame, but with right. curiosity, it opens up to door to, the door to say, I wonder, I wonder where that's coming from. And we are such a wordy, cognitive culture that we're mm -hmm. looking for, well, those words, I no one ever said that to me, but it is that it is that implicit understanding that we have that you were describing. Yeah. I know myself through how others have shown me I am. Therefore, that's how I see myself. So that's exactly. why I love helping people explore their templates. Because one of yes. the biggest things we're doing is figuring out, is that yours? Probably not. And if it's not yours, do you want to still hold on to it? There are some things we want to retain. That's okay. It's not about getting rid of the template, but it is about exploring it because yeah. we carry so much that does not belong to us. It is exactly. insane. Yeah. Yeah. And you know, we work in DART. We work with shame reduction. We use gestalt to empty chair techniques to do that. But we can do that with any attachment figure, for example, a husband and a wife. So, you know, a lot of, uh, and I don't like to, to stereotype gem, gender, but it seems like many of the, the, the women that come in, it's that a large portion of them either feel that they're too much or they're not enough. Mm -hmm. And that they didn't get noticed or for who they were, they had to perform, they had to do something to get noticed. So they take that on as their own. 
And then when they get married and their husband, who's another attachment figure, doesn't notice them. My father didn't notice me. My husband doesn't notice me. It must be that I'm not noticeable. But when we can begin to heal that, that relationship, that marital relationship, and curiosity is definitely at the key and teaching each other to be curious with what they're thinking. Oh, that, I wonder why she said that. Let's lean in and ask, mm -hmm. you know? And so the husband starts noticing and now she's got a different narrative. My dad didn't notice me. My husband adores me. That must be my father's issue. And literally what she's doing is reducing the shame from childhood and putting it back whence it came. Yeah, because that was never hers to carry. It was and never that hers can, to carry. That can be so complex for people because, yes. you you know, I think, you know, maybe the average age of a client I see is about 35, 37 years old. Mm -hmm. It's almost 40. That's a long time to carry a narrative to all of a sudden be told maybe that narrative isn't truth. And it's hard to let go of some of those things, but it can be such powerful work. I also like to say we are constantly having current interactions with historical experiences. Yes. And the number of times that we uh, get activated and perceive that an interaction we're having right now is the same or very akin to the numerous experiences we've had in the past. You know, the beautiful thing about our brain is we've survived as a species this long because it takes what I like to call shortcuts. Mm -hmm. If the brain looked at every single incident interaction that we had as a brand new first time thing, there's a lot of things that wouldn't get done. We wouldn't be productive. There, that would be, take a lot of time and energy. So the brain is masterful. Part of our survival means taking one or two small elements of a situation and then saying, what other situations have been like this? And then mm -hmm. lumping it all together. And that, that has worked in keeping this species alive. But man, when it comes to relationships, when we keep lumping all of those things together, we find that we're in frequent conflict with loved ones, with peers, with ourselves, because we are just kind of lumping these experiences together instead of saying, wait, in that example you gave, but he's not my dad. And when I've worked with family members and I've worked with couples, part of that is just that moment of pause that I have taught people to say, he is not my dad. She is not my sister. She is not that teacher. We have to literally be like, wait a minute. I'm not in that historical experience. Right. Let me look at what's happening right now. So it's very, very powerful work. Exactly. And that's what I have to practice at home with my wife. My wife has PTSD from childhood abuse. When she gets fearful, my childhood gets triggered because I had to reject fear. That's the one double barrel I got from my mom and my dad is to play it safe. So fear gets me amped up. And I didn't realize that in the first part of that marriage. And then one time she said, you know, you have triggers too. It's like, okay, I do. And now I realize that when she gets fearful, when her little four-year-old comes to the surface and she gets childlike, that triggers me and I literally have to recognize that and say she's not my mother and now I'm capable to go as a functional adult to, to, to comfort my wife. 
And that's what I love about couples therapy, family yes. therapy. I love working with the families. It's not just about something's wrong. Let's go solve the problem. Not at all. Mm-hmm. It literally is. Things are great. Like we're a healthy family. That's amazing. Now let's come together and understand each other in yeah. these deeper ways of knowing so that our our relationship and our interactions can become even healthier. You know, exactly. there there is so much. I, I, I enjoy working with teens, right? Not even just teams, like friends. I grew up as an only child and I have selected my family most of my life, right? I didn't have similar age siblings. And so a lot of my friends became like sisters and brothers and, mm-hmm. you know, people who nurtured me, aunts and uncles and all of those things. And so sometimes when people are thinking about therapy for the family, they're thinking about those they share DNA with, but I'm talking about, you know, that group of girlfriends that get together and make sure they travel every year and they're each other's children's godparents. How about that group of people coming into a family therapy situation and saying, there's nothing wrong with our relationships, but let's look at how I can understand your perspective better, Mm -hmm. how I can understand your lived experience better. I like to sprinkle in a little bit of Enneagram to add texture and all of these different things so that if we can understand ourselves better, we can understand those that we are in relationship better. We not only know how to set functional boundaries for ourselves and be moderate and all these things that I talk about with our developments and relational trauma, but we can also just have improved relationships across the board. Right, exactly. Um, Dispenza said this to make it a little practical for anyone who's listening. You know, you talk about triggers or past experiences creeping into the present. So Dr. Joe Dispenza, uh, he said this, emotions are the end result of a past experience. So every time we get an emotional charge, our brain, something in the present triggered a memory in the past. The brain brings that memory up to the present. Now we're interpreting that present through the past experience. Mm-hmm. And, and so that's that's where, and what that trigger is, it's a threat to something. So something a threat of somewhere and now we're going to interpret that and we're going to respond accordingly and that's what you know I created this thing called the kill switch and I try to get that uh, people to realize when they feel an emotion hold it what's going on as soon as you stop it it'll keep you from going into subconscious and self-preservation and into hypervigilance where you're only looking for threats or if you kill it right then and you can say wait a second you know this is my my case she's not my mother then that puts me in conscious awareness. It engages the part of the brain that is capable of love, compassion, kindness, and empathy. And now I think you can engage with my wife in compassion and empathy and actually perceive from her point of view. And, it, and then it, she feels felt. Yeah. And what you did was you used that emotion as data. I like to yes. tell people that emotions are information. It's data. Exactly. And it's a data point. Right. What is the data trying to tell you? Exactly. And it's, it's, I, and when people go and I, I want to um, tease something out because I don't want sure. people to hear your kill switch and think repress. No, you no, know, no, no, not at all. But how do we stop in that moment and say, this may not be the truth or reality of what's happening. Let me pause. Let me kill it right now. Let me see what the information is trying to tell me. 
it's 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 and this is a good example because we do this as people our bodies are communicating with us all the time there's nothing we know that didn't start in our body Mm -hmm. okay if you know something because you've seen it that started in the body if you know something because you've heard it it started in the body and so when something comes so i always use the example of using the bathroom Mm-hmm. How do you know? Because there are people who say, I don't, because one of my go-to questions is, where do you feel that in your body? If they're talking about some kind of emotion and they're like, I, I don't know. I, I, I don't even know what you're talking about. I said, that's okay. When you have to go to the bathroom, how do you know? Ah, I feel it. Where? Where do you feel it? If you had to mm-hmm. give it a color, can you tell the difference between when you have to urinate and defecate? Because you don't start off knowing. As a person who is on the tail end of potty training twins, I know, particularly for one of my daughters, she doesn't know that she didn't know the difference at first. She just knew I had to go to the bathroom. Mm-hmm. And when she would get there, then whatever came out, came out. <laughs> sometimes yeah. she would say she had to do one thing. She would get to the bathroom. She would do another. But isn't that how our emotions work sometimes? Oh, exactly. It's exactly. like, we don't, we can't differentiate. It's just, I feel, eh, blah. We'll do a hand motion. We try to, we're trying to give, you know, like express this experience, but it's just information. Now, if every time your body communicated, hey, I got to go pee. We are really good, especially in our culture, of being like, okay, I felt it, but let me just finish this email. Let me just get through this meeting. Let me just do this, right? We can do that um, so long that at the end of that meeting, we forget that we had to go pee. That Mm -hmm. does not mean that the bladder is not still full, okay? It just meant that we learned how to toggle in and off those sensors that remind us. And so when an emotion comes through. I also like to think of emotions as toddlers. That toddler in the store that's tantruming, that was not that toddler's first attempt at communicating. They needed something. Way back when you said, hey, get your coat on, we're getting ready to go. And they said, no, I don't want to go. That was attempt number one, probably three. They probably had some kind of nonverbal attempt before that, but then you forced the coat on them and then you forced them in the seat. Then you forced them to get out He's overstimulated and tired and he passes tantrum in the middle of the store and all the judgment goes to the kid or the parent when the, he tried to communicate. Well, I believe our emotions do the same thing. When you can become attuned to yourself, you can recognize those first hints of, hey, here this is. And when you've done the work of starting to differentiate, I used to have so many things under the umbrella of anger. But when I began to realize that embarrassment was different, resentment was different, rejection was different, they were all just manifesting under the one thing I knew, which was anger, I understood it better. And so when we can start to understand this about emotions, their data, their information points, and they don't have to then go into this ruminating, self-fulfilling, prophetic experiences that we have, it's so empowering. Yeah, yeah. And, and, you know, that's where curiosity comes in. Why am I feeling what, I, what am I feeling? And, and it's like, it's this, it's this puzzle. It's this crime scene almost or, you know, because we all like to watch crime. At least I like to watch crime movies, you know, and, and to figure out what's going on. And that curiosity to say, why am I feeling the way that I'm doing? And when you realize that you find all these morsels of truth 
and healing. And it's like, oh, I want more of this. And, you know, a, a lot of the times when I use kill switch, it's usually in couples therapy to where one got triggered and that is, and they're ready to deliver a counterattack. It's like, wait, wait, you're feeling that emotion. It's reminding you of something. You're feeling a threat and you're ready to go into counterattack. But if you just say, wait, what am I feeling? And that's what Siegel says. If we name it, it begins to tame, tame it. it. Mm -hmm. Right. <laughs> and then it sort of slows it down. And then you ask and you come into conscious awareness and your brain's fully engaged. You're not going into your brainstem. You're not going into automation. And, and then that's when you say, okay, I wonder why she's angry. Curiosity, not only with me, but with her. And then lean in and say, I noticed this. Can you tell me what you're feeling and thinking? And going back to what we, you know, Seagull, name it to tame it. When you name it, you can tame it, which is why I advocate for people to use things like a feelings wheel, yes. a feelings oh, yeah. chart, yes. expanding our vocabulary um, beyond mad, sad, happy, exactly. you know, it is so helpful to be able to name that experience oh, yeah. and, and, and continuing to tease it out. And when you get ready to call one thing, it's this, like, oh, is there another word that better fits? And, and there's not a single time that I can recall ever putting a feelings wheel in front of someone and they weren't able to discern other words that right. that are able to help them understand that. And so I find this to be so helpful. And hopefully what the listeners are, you know, are really taking away is like, this is some empowering stuff. And it all is coming back to really having a deeper understanding of ourselves. Right, right. And when we realize that for so many of us, for most of our lives, we've known ourselves the way other people have told us that we are or have reflected or have treated us or have looked at us. But that doesn't necessarily mean that's who we are. Right. And, you know, if people who enjoy this podcast realize that so many people told me I talk too much, it's, it's not even funny. Mm -hmm. Right. And, and I, I viewed it. How do you taper it back? Right. How do, how do it's too much or not enough. And I, I vacillated between those extremes all mm -hmm. the time. And it's like, I wouldn't be here delivering this content, you know, having this impact that people say is so valuable. If I didn't do the work of figuring out who I was outside sure. of what all of those people told me, these were influential people. They were usually adults who had some level of influence and power over my life, like teachers, mm -hmm. you know, and things like that, who were broadcasting and projecting onto me their perspective, total different. No, but when I tell you I only had three black teachers from kindergarten to 12th grade, mm -hmm. that's impactful because okay. I was getting a white woman, usually a white woman's perspective of who I was mm -hmm. in this black body. And, and that is, once I began to explore beyond who people told me I was, I can sit here in this authenticity and do what I'm doing now. And so that's the encouragement I want people to take away. Like, yeah. who am I beyond what all these other people have told me I am? Yeah. And you mentioned authenticity and that's part of that self-love 
you know, once we be, begin to feel confident in who we are at our core level, and then we can enter into authenticity instead of operating from the false self, we can come with the true self. And that's what I learned in the wild men way back then is the power of authenticity. When, when, when people can be authentic with each other, things heal. And I remember I was working with adults with autism and, you know, I was just learning what, adult, what autism was. I didn't, didn't know. And I remember my supervisor saying, Scott, you have such an authentic relationship with your, with your clients. They respond to you. And I thought, hmm, yeah, I don't know much about autism. I was just being real with them and change was happening. And it was just amazing, just being authentic and just treating them as authentic in, in this, this give and take relationship, they found themselves. That, that's such a, a powerful example that our authenticity matters to others and yes. in relationship. When I first began conscious, my conscious authentic journey about nine years ago, um, I wasn't thinking about the impact it would have on my relationships or other people. I was just trying to find me. I had just exited a 12 year relationship and I was completely consumed in that relationship. When that relationship ended, I literally had no idea who I was. It was, it was really a very pragmatic <laughs> um, journey. Who am I outside of this relationship? And so I did explore basic things like, is this really my favorite color? Is this really my favorite food? I remember having that moment. I can see exactly where I was standing when I went, do I really like thrifting? And the answer was no. My mother likes it, that the partner I had at the time did. And so I thrifting was this part of life, right? I don't like thrifting, Scott. I just don't. <laughs> it's not my thing. Kudos to you if you do, but I don't. But it, I never, ever, ever thought, let me explore and be curious with who I actually right. am. Now, once I got that foundational level of like, who am I? Where I can say I am on the journey now is that I have such an awareness of who I am. There are still things that pop up that I'm like, ooh, that feels new. Let's explore that. Or, ooh, that feels old. Let me explore that. But yeah. because I've been very diligent on the journey, what I found is things that I stopped doing during my authentic journey because it didn't feel authentic, I can now pick back up because I won't get lost in it. So an example right. of right. that is... Um, hair extensions. I went through a very long period of time where I would not wear hair extensions because I wanted my natural hair. Who? This is my hair as it grows out of my scalp. And I wanted to really embrace that and, and lean into that. And it was a beautiful part of my journey. I love my hair. But now I'm at the point where it doesn't matter what hair I'm putting on top of my head. I'm still Shonda. And I don't get confused I don't feel this urge to then shift into someone else. I'm not trying to portray a certain thing. I just want to wear my hair the way I want to wear my hair. And so I, I think that's an important note for people who are on the journey of authenticity or considering it is you can get to a point 
where you understand yourself so genuinely and authentically that the externalization of certain things like the clothes you wear and how you wear your hair, the car you drive and the home you live in, they become exactly what they are, accessories. Right. But they are not Not an appendage. Exactly. And I identified with all these externalized things and how I in, um, engage with the world that now as an accessory and literally my hair has been so many different colors yeah. right and and because it's just an accessory and so I, I think that's important too as we talk about that and once we can do that the relationships we have with others not only does it um, I would say improve the quality of that but we really do people who live authentically become this beacon of light yeah for people who don't know it's possible, don't think it's possible, or want that to be true for themselves. And so, yeah, I think that's fantastic. Yeah. And, you know, you mentioned something uh, about the, the thrifting, and that can seem like such a trivial, minor thing. But I could see in your, in your um, excitement that it had some meaning. It was a source of freedom. And I yeah. think that's what this whole journey, when, when people that are listening, that they get to realize that all these little things that we were doing, one of my, my uh, discoveries was I'm a golfer. And sometimes I need to buy a dozen golf balls to play golf. But there were some times that I needed to buy a dozen golf balls to feel better. And, I ha- and it, just that is like, oh, I was dysregulated. I was using, my, my wife would never complain about me spending $25, but me doing that was an indication. So I have to check myself and say, okay, do I need golf balls or am I dysregulated? And if I'm dysregulated, then I can do something different. That's a healthy spot because buying a dozen golf balls, I'm going to need to buy another dozen, you know, next week. Absolutely. I mean, you begin to uncover these layers yeah. that it's like, oh, it's it it's like me and food mm-hmm, right sure. no i'm not hungry i'm dysregulated i am experiencing mm-hmm. something and the go to to grab whatever is going to satisfy in that moment to distract or whatever that that comfort food once you have that awareness it does not mean that I don't sometimes grab that chalk no but what it means is that i can have this awareness okay whoa, when I go on my Tasmanian devil, I have to organize and pick up and clean every single thing in front of me, you know, and my family's looking at me like I'm crazy. No, it's not because I'm this super organized person. It's because I feel I've lost control somewhere and now I'm trying to gain it back. I had to understand that about myself. So I, I do love that. Once we start to understand what's underneath, What need is this thing that I'm doing or not doing, trying to meet? That is when we can see authentic change in our lives, where we're not just chasing the behavior, but we're understanding that the behavior is meeting a need. We got to figure out a way to meet that need in a healthy way if we're going to have sustained change. Exactly. And that's what Dr. Shore says, that everything comes from dysregulation, because we were designed, our self-preservation was designed that we come out of the womb is we're dependent, you know, on our parents. And when we get dysregulated, the the self-preservation says to be connected, to belong, 
that love was part of our self-preservation. You can see it in the animal world. You know, if a lion has a, a, a gaggle of gazelles, for example, it, the gazelles are safe in the gaggle. The lion tries to isolate them to get it. So we're, we're, when we're isolated, we're vulnerable. So self-preservation is a part of that and a belonging and acceptance. And, and so when the baby's dysregulated, it needs co-regulation of emotions. Regulation of emotions were supposed to come through relationship. And that's always, never are we totally um, attuned coming out of childhood. So what happens is, what, what Shore will say in Mate and Bruce Perry, Dr. Perry, and, and those is that everything in the DSM-5 is a coping mechanism to misattunements. It's dealing, finding ways to deal with dysregulation. So we talk about food, we talk about golf balls, we talk about sex, we talk about addiction. It's all about co-regulation emotions because relationships, and I think that's why the church, if you go into churches and say, God is love, yeah, but you need discipline. You need, you need the rod because love truly is the power, but love was not safe in childhood and we can't trust it as adults. And I think that's the big breakdown. So when we look at, we find we're left to our own device in childhood to find coping mechanisms and ways to self-soothe that's not based on co-regulation. So for example, What's co-regulation and healthy self-soothing? So if my wife and I are safe, we have a, a safe relationship to where we're, we're in tune and there's no threats to us. So my wife and I have an argument before I'm going into work. So now I'm bringing in dysregulation. How does co-regulation work on the way to work? And it's, this is how it works. Okay, my wife and I, we had an argument. It's not a threat to our relationship. She was triggered, I was triggered, but I know how she feels. So I don't have to be threatened by that argument. So I can self-soothe on the back of the co-regulation of emotions that we have. But what if we weren't close and we had an argument? Now, how do I self-soothe? I can't say, well, I can trust her, it's like, oh no, there is a threat. Now I have to find a way to manufacture my body to regulate and to self-soothe because my relationship may be threatened. It may not, I'm not sure. Does that make sense? Well, it does. And I, I also like this perspective of understanding that we, it's like a bank account, right? Regulation, safety, and all those things, we accrue them over time. Mm -hmm in relationship. And so when we build it up, we can have distance, we can have a rupture, we can have an argument, yes. we can have a disagreement, but we've built up so much of that safety, that security, and that connection that we're like, oh, you know, th this thing isn't going to end our marriage. We just disagreed on this. But what happens often is people in relationship, it doesn't matter what kind of relationship mm -hmm. it can be, no. romantic, platonic, familial, work, we spend so much effort trying to avoid ruptures right. that we don't know how to repair. Exactly. And we haven't built up that currency of, of that safe connection, authentic connection. Right. So when we do have a minor disagreement, oh my God, it's over. 
we how we can never get past this and so we want to do that i do want to come back to something you said you know you were in in transitioning but you're talking about the church and you know but we need the rod i think the thing that frustrates me the most about people saying that is a lack of understanding exactly. of what the rod oh, is yeah. used for go for it right? Lashonda, you're right on my right on my a, a disciplinary tool. It was a tool of love. I want, I use the hook to bring you back. I want to make sure that, that you don't go too far off that I'm going to gently guide ready to you. Jump off a cliff. And if, so, yes. And if someone else, if that wolf comes, if someone comes to harm you, I can use that rod to hurt them, to drive mm-hmm. them away. Right. But it, it's so when people are talking about spare the rod, spoil the child. What are you even talking about? It's not about beating your kids. That is a template that they need to look at, right? And it's a template uh, not just of the individual uh, uh, clergy, but of the church itself. And of parenting. You know, and And so I... Because the rod, what else? The the shepherd used the rod as gentle guidance. It's almost like a horse rein where you just touch one side to get them to go right instead of left. It's just touching. And the, another thing they'll use is if they're frantic because of some fear that the, if they want them to go, if the, the whole pack is frantic, the shepherd throws it on the ground to startle them to get them to, to go right because the, the danger's left. Yeah. But shepherds never spank sheep. No. And it's, 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 it's interesting because it's like they use that and it's like, but you don't even have a full understanding of how the rod itself was used, exactly. which just goes to how we will use anything. Scriptures and statistics uh, have a lot of similarities and they can be manipulated to fit whatever purpose the person who is using them does. So you just said that and I want yeah. to come back and throw that point um, because so much of what we're talking about is that self-love. But imagine that if that is how you were disciplined, your capacity for self-love is impacted by how your caregivers showed you love and disciplined you. And so that's a matter, you know, this ongoing conversation, you know, spankings, no spankings and things. When we come back to what we said, everything you absorb and it's downloaded and you experience in the first seven years of your life sets the course and the template and the mainframe of how you will view everything going forward, that as parents, that should make us ask a few questions of ourselves, which are, here's the lesson I think I'm trying to teach my child, but I always try to get parents to ask another question, which is, and what are the other unintentional lessons they'll learn in the process? So you thought that hitting the child was going to send a clear message of don't do it again because I don't want to feel that pain. They may absorb that lesson, but what else? And my personal parenting philosophy is I have to treat my child and children the way I am expecting them to receive treatment from anyone in the future, future partners, bosses, people in authority. And if I have a problem with a police officer coming up and being physically violent with my black son, then how about I not be violent with my black son so he understands that's not okay. Or a supervisor using demeaning language when someone doesn't do what they're supposed to. If I don't want my children's future bosses 
to talk to them that way, then I need not talk to them that way because I am a big seal of approval for mm -hmm. relational Sure. for relationships going forward. And so when we think about it that way, we are informing our children's templates, then sure. it will hopefully have us be at least more conscious with the decisions we make in regards to many things in their lives. Right. And you, you speak of that, and you know, as a parent, you're an authority figure. And so if authority figure is just concerned with behavior and not the thought process, not what's driving, not to get beyond below to the core of what's driving that action, then that says whenever you're around authority, you hide. Don't show the true self. Don't be authentic. And then that has a whole wave of confidence that spiral out from that. It sure does. So Scott, like I said, we can talk for hours and we have, yeah. and we normally do. And this has been so great. Um, as we begin to wrap up, is there anything in closing you want to make sure the listeners know or hear from you or anything you want to share? Yeah. Uh, you know, I think that the breakdown is what do I do at the core with all of my shortcomings? You know, I know I'm imperfect. How do I handle them? And that causes me not to accept me. And, you know, when you look at faith and you look at, look at scripture where that's why I think God is so important in, in this is that when we can accept that God says you're flawed and I love you. And the more that you receive my love, the more you're inclined to emulate me to have me, to express me, you know, that, and when we can love that, then we can love another. So that's the breakdown is how do I love myself? And, and how can I think highly of myself? And, and that's at the core of every relationship and it's going to drive. And that when we get down to the core of who you are, you're going to find someone that's good down there. You're going to like the true self. It's only the false self that you've come to despise. It's only, you know, that's, that's what you've been conditioned to believe. But this journey is one that has many blessings and you will enjoy. We'll find someone worthy of love. Yes, exactly. <laughs> yes. Exactly. Scott, if someone um, heard some of the things you were saying and talking about and wanted to get in touch with you or find you, how might they do that? Um, I'm employed at Counseling Alliance, so counselingalliance.com. Uh, I'm also also on Facebook, Scott Schneider. And those are the two. I haven't joined Instagram or, or uh, Twitter yet, but I, I look to, to be on there soon. Awesome. And I'd like to round out each interview by asking my guests to share a little known, fun, or interesting fact about themselves. Okay. So I'm going to go, you know, I just turned 60. So I'm going to go to some of the older folk in here that, that might. And um, when I went to Indiana University, I got to uh, take Bobby Knight's class coaching a basketball. And the very first class, the opening of that very first class was he walked in the door, he turned around, leaned against his desk and yelled at me. So I, was say, I got yelled at for Bobby Nat for wearing a hat. And then the second cool thing is I played softball against Larry Bird. Ooh, 
that is interesting. Yeah. The Did only out win? I ever enjoyed making. No, we didn't win. And I flew out to him and I, I was happy about that out. The only time I've ever been happy about an out. <laughs> That's awesome. Scott, thank you so much for taking some time out to join me and to just share your wisdom and passion with my listeners. Thanks for being my guest. I, I had a blast. And uh, again, it just shows what we found in our discussions before. I love the way you think. And uh, I look forward to to going further into some of the issues that we've talked about and, and be uh, part of the solution maybe in our local community. Yes, absolutely. Thank you, Scott. I want to give a special shout out to Trey Angel, who does all of the music for the Labors of Love podcast, to my producer, Jay Suck from Instant Classic Media, and of course, to you, my listeners. Thank you so much for spending the time listening to this episode. If you have any suggestions for guests or content or just want to reach out, please feel free to go to my website, www.thelaborsoflove.com. Don't forget, we are on all the major social media outlets. I want to tell you all that we have a brand new uh, Instagram page specifically for the podcast, the underscore LOL underscore pod. So go over and follow the Instagram page. And don't forget to give us that five-star rating. Uh, Give us a review and share the podcast with those you love. Until we connect again, you all be well.